This episode of Cold Case Frozen Tundra is brought to you by Badger State Brewing, makers of some of our all-time favorite beers. That's right. My favorite, as you've heard me mention before, is Badger State's Grassy Place Hazy IPA. Not only is it my first choice when I stop by the brewery, but I love that it's also available in a can at many retail outlets. It's a perfect beer to pick up when I'm headed to an event, to throw in the cooler for a day at the beach, or anything else. Grassy Place is a great beer for any occasion. And if you're looking for something a little lighter this summer, it's hard to go wrong with Badger State's Brewski Lager. Brewski is also available both at the bar as well as in a can, so it's great for a day on the boat or the course or anywhere you'd want to bring a beverage. Visit badgerstatebrewing.com for more information or stop by the brewery right next to Lambeau Field in Green Bay. This year, 2022, will mark the 30th anniversary of the search for Lori Deppis. Three decades since the day Lori pulled her gray Volkswagen Rabbit into the parking lot of the apartment where her boyfriend Mark and his sister Lisa lived, and then, before she ever made it inside, seemingly vanished without a trace. It's a time span that has seen six presidents, eight Summer Olympic Games, the incitement and conclusion of wars, countless major events, the spread of cell phones, personal computers, the internet, and social media. A lot has changed in 30 years. And yet, for the family and friends of Lori Deppis, one fact has remained constant over all this time. There are no definitive answers to explain what happened to Lori or point to who is responsible for her disappearance. Larry DeWayne Hall David Frank Spanbauer, and the man we're calling Tim, a pseudonym, each have distinct links to the case. Each, for their own unique reasons, offer a compelling case for their consideration as a suspect in Lori's disappearance. Likewise, there are factors of each person's story which seem to make it less likely each was involved. Today, we'll look into this further. I'm Matt Hiskus, and this is Cold Case Frozen Tundra. Season 2, Episode 6, One Among Many. Hello and welcome to the Cold Case Frozen Tundra podcast. I'm Dr. Jordan Karsten, your co-host along with Matt in our continued search for the truth behind the disappearance of Lori Deppis. Today's episode will be slightly different from the others that you've heard to this point in the series. In our previous episodes, we've provided a recounting of events rooted in extensive research, conversations with those who are present or are experts on the subjects, and discussions with those closest to the investigation. Some of those conversations, as you've heard throughout this podcast, were recorded, while others were for information gathering purposes only. The stories we've presented prior to today have been based on factual accounts, at least as closely as our knowledge and research can bring us. Today, you will certainly hear us share details we've covered in prior episodes, 
along with some new information that was gathered in the exact same manner. Items we believed to the highest level of certainty that we're able to offer to be facts. But as we take a deeper look at each of our three main suspects today, you'll also hear Matt and I share our opinions and interpretations of some of the details. While our thoughts are informed by the extensive conversations and research that we've conducted, they're still just opinions and should be considered as such. We will attempt to be clear whenever we're sharing an opinion rather than a fact, but we wanted to make you aware of this right from the start. With all that said, let's begin. With any unsolved case, there are countless theories that arise from time to time purporting to point to the person responsible for the crime. These range, as you would likely quickly find out in speaking with any detective, from completely absurd, baseless claims, all the way to tips that are potentially quite credible, which hold the hope of sparking a lead. While Lori's case is no different in the sense that there have been some theories raised which boast links between individuals in the case that are, to put it kindly, loose associations at best, it's somewhat unique in that the vast majority of claims, theories, or new bits of information point to any one of three key individuals we've learned about so far. Larry Dwayne Hall, David Frank Spanbauer, or Tim, as we've been calling him. With three plausible suspects and a lack of conclusive evidence pointing to any one of them as the culprit, we wanted to take a closer look at what we know about each. We want to evaluate the connection between each suspect and Lori's disappearance, weigh the likelihood of each as the potential perpetrator, and look into what the location of Lori's remains, if discovered, could tell us about the person responsible for the crime. That's right. Let's start by looking more closely at the first suspect on the list, Larry Dwayne Hall, who we covered in detail in Episode 3. We'll start with the known facts that support the case against him as the man responsible for Lori's disappearance. Without a doubt, the most important piece of evidence is Larry's own 2010 confession. Larry Hall told investigators that he'd been in Wisconsin to attend a Civil War reenactment the weekend prior to Lori's disappearance. Our research confirms that the event was held on those dates as Larry reported. The reenactment took place at the Greeno Mansion in Kakana, which is not at all far from the Fox River Mall and Mark's apartment. Larry admitted to detectives that he had been at the Fox River Mall on the night of August 19th. He said he had observed Lori leaving the mall after her shift, that he followed her, abducted her, and ultimately murdered her. We know that along with his confession, Larry Hall provided investigators with the location where he claimed to have placed Lori's body. Though the exact location was never made public, officers did disclose that it was a remote, wooded area during a press conference held in the spring of 2011. As far as facts supporting the case against any of the suspects go, Larry Hall's confession is, without a doubt, worthy of significant consideration. No one else has ever claimed to be involved in the crime, and here is a convicted kidnapper and suspected serial killer known to have been operating at that time, admitting his guilt. There are also a couple of other details that support the fact that Larry Dwayne Hall may have been involved. The first piece of additional evidence comes from the scraps of paper found when police in Indiana arrested, then later released Larry, after he had been reported following women in their town. When police took inventory of Larry's van, they found the words Lori, spelled L-O-R-I, and Fox River Mall, written in a notebook Larry kept there. 
The second bit of evidence is something we have not yet covered in this podcast. During our research, we received a tip from a woman who, during the time of Lori's disappearance, lived near the apartment complex where Mark and Lisa rented, the parking lot where Lori's empty car was discovered shortly after she pulled in and parked. The woman with whom we spoke shared that she had seen a man in the days after Lori disappeared who stood out to her as odd. I remember driving down Wilson one day and seeing a man that was coming towards me in the opposite direction and the sun was shining through the window of his van and I thought it really was odd that he was wearing obviously a synthetic wig. It was very shiny, very plastic, very cheap. Like, And it was, I would say, a little bit more than a shoulder length or just around shoulder length long wig. Um, very full-faced man. I always told my husband if I had to describe him, the only way I could describe him is there's a character on Family Guy. I want to say he's like the oldest child of the the father figure on that show really described him. You should probably can visualize him. Was he kind of looked like that? Just kind of a full faced, a little bit sweaty. Um, like I said, shoulder length, this odd shoulder length, um, blonde hair with a hat. He's wearing a hat, which kind of seemed to emphasize his large cheek area. And I, I'm pretty sure like a dark t-shirt. The other thing that struck me was odd, and like I said, I don't remember if it was two days later, three days later, but it was definitely not the same day of the abduction, or I should say the following day of the abduction, or maybe even the day after that. So, but just knowing that this had gone in on in the area, I thought it was odd that this person was driving an oddly colored van um, and wearing this synthetic wig. And it just struck me as odd. To the best of our knowledge and research, and through our discussions with biographer Christopher Hawley Martin, we are unaware of any other reports of Larry Hall using a wig during his frequent and often brazen drives around crime scenes. With that said, it's certainly possible. And you have heard the woman mention the odd van. Here's more on that. I didn't see a side window when I passed him because, you know, again, I passed him and kind of looked at him kind of like, that's just such an odd thing. He's wearing a wig and what a weird colored old van, you know? So I passed him and I could tell there was no side window, but when I looked in my rear view mirror, I could tell that there, it was like a double door opening to the back of this van and the uh, windows on those double open doors um, were like a bubble, like they were like bubbled out from the frame, like a formed a bubble, um, but they were painted the same color of the van. So there was no like, so it wasn't see-through. It was that opaque, weird, funny green. So that's my only recollection of, you know, that, that, that happened. So, um, and of course, as I'm, reading then the information that's being released and going, oh, you know, oh my gosh, why didn't I say something? And this is many years later, so... Um, like Larry Hall did own a van similar to the one you just heard described. It was an older teal or greenish van with an extremely strange shape that almost resembled an old Volkswagen Type 2, the van made popular during the hippie movement. Only Hall's was significantly boxier and more industrial looking, featuring a front windshield that more closely resembles that of an RV with 
two angled panes of glass and a metal divider strip running down the center. The van had matching paneling instead of rear seat windows, adding to its strange appearance. It's certainly possible that the person the woman witnessed shortly after Lori's disappearance was Larry Hall in his teal van. He did own a similar one, and, as far as we know, could have gotten a cheap blonde wig to wear while driving around. With that said, by 1992, Larry Hall had, according to his own accounts, transitioned away from using his teal van for travel. Though he still kept the van in his driveway and may have used it locally, Hall had begun to take longer trips in another van he'd purchased, this one tan and brown. The van reported to police on multiple occasions and in many cities as Larry followed women around town. It is likely, if Larry Hall was involved in Lori's disappearance, that the brown van would have been the one he used. And that brings us to a discussion of the facts that don't seem to support the case against Larry Hall as responsible for Lori's abduction and murder. The most noteworthy, of course, is the fact that despite his confession, Larry Hall has been unwilling or unable to offer any evidence that can be used to corroborate his confession, which is an incredibly important detail for investigators. Here's retired DCI Special Agent Keir Shawhorn with more on that. If we're looking to validate someone's confession, we want to, you know, is, is this is, does this person know something that only the killer would know? Does this person, you know, have information that has never been put out there in the media that law enforcement only knows and now here this person knows it? We look to corroborate the information that they provide to have physical evidence that matches them up with the case that um, just someone telling us something depending on who it is, depending on the circumstances, doesn't necessarily mean a whole lot when there is no physical evidence to go along with it. We know that during Larry Hall's confession, investigators pushed him to provide details that would help them prove beyond a doubt that he was responsible for Lori's disappearance. The most notable of these, as you'd expect, was the location where Larry hid Lori's body after murdering her. A search of the spot Larry provided failed to turn up Lori's remains. Larry did not offer any other information to prove he was the perpetrator. Not only does the lack of corroborating evidence to support Larry's confession mean that the case cannot be closed, but the fact Larry Hall seems unable to provide details known only to the killer begins to cast doubt on whether he is actually responsible, at least to some extent. Here's Kira again. And if he's confessing to all of these things, if he wants law enforcement to believe he did these things. He's not, he's not trying to hide it. He's telling law enforcement that he did it. Well, then give us some information that's actually true. Give us some information that we're going to be able to follow up on, that we're going to be able to corroborate. Prove to us that you did it. If you want to put yourself out there that you're the one who did it, then help us find these women and, you know, It's also worth mentioning that this very act of confessing to crimes and then later recanting or contradicting himself or failing to support the confession with pertinent details is not unique to the investigation into Larry Hall for the disappearance of Lori Deppis. He's done this before in other cases, both prior to and after being arrested and convicted for the kidnapping of Jessica Roach. All in all, it casts a certain level of doubt on any confession Larry Hall may offer. 
or at least the higher threshold of proof he'd need to provide in order to convince investigators of his guilt. There are other factors which seem to confuse the case against Larry Hall as the man responsible. One relates to the very reason Larry Hall said he was in Wisconsin in 1992, the Civil War reenactment held at Greeno Mansion. As we stated earlier, it is true that the reenactment was held, as Larry Hall told detectives, a Friday, Saturday, and Sunday before Lori disappeared. We confirmed this by reaching out to Cassidy Mickelson, executive director of the Greeno Mansion, who provided us some details and news articles covering the event. However, it has never been confirmed that Larry Hall actually participated in that reenactment. As we discussed earlier in the series, Larry Hall and his brother Gary were members of the group of reenactors who comprised Company A of the 19th Indiana Volunteer Infantry Regiment, known as the Iron Brigade. But the Iron Brigade wasn't actually part of the reenactment held that weekend in Wisconsin. The small skirmishes and Civil War encampments being portrayed that weekend did not feature Indiana's 19th Regiment, and Larry Hall, along with other members of the group, would not have been specifically invited. This does not mean Larry could not have gone on his own and either volunteered or spectated at the event. It's certainly possible. However, investigators following up on Hall's 2010 confession have never been able to track down anyone who remembers seeing Larry there that weekend. That's right. Another detail that seems to make Larry Dwayne Hall's story a little less likely is the fact that no one at Mark's apartment heard any sound after Lori pulled into the lot and got out of her car. They didn't hear her scream or fight with anyone, despite universally agreeing Lori was not one to willingly get into a stranger's vehicle. Larry's account of seeing Lori for the first time at the Fox River Mall, of following her vehicle to the apartment and abducting her before she made it into the apartment, while not impossible, certainly seems difficult to pull off before she had a chance to fight or cry out in surprise. Larry was known to carry rags and rope and has stated that he'd sometimes use chemicals to subdue his victims. But this is a very small, well-lit parking lot. Even the use of chloroform or another substance requires you to be able to first sneak up behind someone. Having been to that parking lot, I can tell you that would have been very hard to do. And I think that leads into a brief discussion of our opinions on Larry Hall as a suspect. Once again, though based on our knowledge of these facts, these statements are only our opinions. I don't think either one of us would claim that there is no chance that Larry Dwayne Hall committed the crime. There's nothing to conclusively show it's not possible. But I think that despite his confession, I find him a less likely suspect due to the fact you simply cannot trust any word he says, and really, his word is all that connects him to the case. Yeah, I agree. Something could of course come out that proves he did in fact do it. That's definitely a possibility. But I'm in the same camp as you, Matt. Barring any actual evidence from Larry Hall to corroborate his claim, I think the fact that there isn't even proof that he was in Wisconsin at the time, that Lori didn't scream or fight or abduct her, and that Larry has since contradicted his information in subsequent interviews, all adds up to an unreliable confession and decreases his viability as a suspect. It's also worth mentioning that Larry Hall's IQ is 80. I find it pretty unlikely that anyone, let alone someone with a very low IQ, can get away with the dozens of abductions and murders that have been potentially linked to Larry Hall without being discovered. Yes, he did eventually get caught, but that should make it even more likely. 
Now that he's a person of interest in other cases, that more evidence is found against him, but somehow there's nothing. Is it possible that it was Larry Hall? Sure. But if I had to pick the person I believe to be most likely responsible with all we know today, it wouldn't be Larry. Let's move on then to David Frank Spanbauer, the second person of interest we've covered in this series. Overwhelmingly, the biggest link between David Spanbauer and Lori Deppis is the story we heard from Barbara, in which Spanbauer used the Fox River Mall to stalk Barbara's daughter Kelly during the early months of 1992. What makes that story of particular interest is the fact that Kelly was friends with Lori, that she would take breaks with her at the mall during the time David Spanbauer was watching her. The two young women also looked somewhat similar. And, as we know, Spanbauer ended up following Kelly's vehicle in his car after she left the mall one night. She was able to make a sudden turn and escape him, but six months later, it's very likely that someone followed Lori from the mall in that exact manner and abducted her after she parked at the apartment complex. Although David Spanbauer is most notorious for the abduction and murder of young girls, including Ronnell Eichstadt, taken just days after Lori, and Cora Jones, who disappeared two years later in 1994, it's worth mentioning that Spanbauer was actually much more opportunistic and wide-ranging in his targets. Clearly, he was interested in Kelly, who was around Lori's age. He's also responsible for rapes, assaults, and attempted crimes against other young women in their late teens and early 20s. In fact, retired DCI Special Agent Kira Schallhorn shared with us that David Spanbauer has been used as a case study in law enforcement training on understanding criminal behavior, due in large part to the fact that he did not seem to focus on one particular type of person when targeting individuals. We also know that on the night Lori disappeared, David Spanbauer had applied for permission to travel to Minnesota, giving him a window of time in which he was not expected to provide immediate reports on his whereabouts to his parole officer. While this alone does not point toward his guilt in the case, it does establish that he may have had an opportunity, freedom with regard to his schedule that, as a parolee, he didn't typically get to enjoy. With all that said, the facts that don't support David Spanbauer as a perpetrator in Lori's case begin with the reality that Barbara's story from February or March of 1992, though incredibly captivating and certainly one that opens the possibility of Spanbauer's involvement, really is the only link between the well-known burglar, rapist, and killer, and Lori Deppis. After that March, when Kelly left her job at Bath & Body Works, no one reported seeing Spanbauer around the mall again. Those we've spoken with who worked alongside Lori at the graffiti store have told us they don't recall ever seeing, or smelling, Spanbauer at all. If he had transitioned to watching Lori after Kelly quit, as Kelly and Barbara feared was the case, it would have been from afar. It's certainly still possible, but less likely given that no one at the mall saw him around again. Yeah, I agree. A second, possibly even more crucial issue with the case against David Spanbauer is that he never admitted responsibility for Lori's disappearance, despite being questioned by detectives. You have to keep in mind, following his arrest after finally being caught in the act during a long-running crime spree in 1994, David did exactly the same as he had done throughout his lifetime of interactions with law enforcement. He began to crack under the pressure of interrogation and admitted to everything, including crimes investigators had not yet been able to link with him. 
By the time David Spanbauer was convicted of the 1992 murder of Renell Eichstadt and the 1994 murders of Cora Jones and Trudy Jeske, he was facing three consecutive life sentences. In addition, he'd been sentenced to another 403 years of prison time for the many other burglaries, rapes, and assaults he'd ultimately admitted to committing in conversations with police. He was never getting out of prison. There was no more reason to hold back information. Here's Kira. Um, I think the thing with David Spanbauer is when he was finally arrested, um, he ended up admitting to, um, you know, Cora Jones and Ronnie Eichstead and Trudy Jeske and um, all of the other crimes that he was, you know, being looked at. He, he admitted to all of those things. He confessed to all of them. He never confessed to Lori. He, you know, and why not at that point? If you're confessing to 10 different crimes that you committed at that point, what's the difference to confess to the 11th one? Um, so he, so he was certainly a suspect. There's a lot of information in the case file about David Spanbauer. Um, but I guess that's as far as, as far as that went, there was never again, anything to specifically tie him to it, to specifically link him to it. And um, then he was in prison already for, you know, multiple other crimes. The last fact that perhaps mitigates the possibility of David Spanbauer being responsible for the crime is, just as we discussed with Larry Hall, the information that no one heard Lori Deppis scream or struggle after pulling into the lot. Similar to Larry Hall, Spanbauer would have been a stranger to Lori. He would have needed to somehow surprise her and take control before she could call for help, which, once again, would have been very difficult to do in a parking lot the size of the one outside Mark's apartment. As always, certainly not impossible, but difficult. And I don't know about you, Jordan, but that sort of summarizes my entire opinion of David Spanbauer as a suspect. Not impossible, certainly, but difficult to imagine without new information that he had in fact been at the mall in the late summer of 1992, or something to that effect. What do you think? Yeah, that's how I feel about it as well. I think the most convincing factor for me is the fact that he didn't admit to abducting Lori at a time he was admitting to everything else. We've even heard from those close to the investigation that detectives visited him again as his health was failing, just before he ultimately passed away, to ask if he had any final acts to confess. He was specifically asked about Lori and once again said he had not been involved. There simply was no reason left for him to lie. Now, of course, he's a known sociopath and could be capable of holding information back without any logical reason. But it seems unlikely given what he was willing to admit with regard to other crimes. And that brings us to the last of our three persons of interest. The man we're calling Tim, though that's not his real name. As we covered in last week's episode, Tim knew Lori through their jobs at the Fox River Mall. They both worked at stores in the same wing right across the hallway from each other. Tim's story is a compelling one, one that includes several facts that support the case for him as the potential perpetrator. We know that Tim had at least some romantic interest in Lori, that he asked her out or expressed his interest in dating her on the very day she went missing, in advance that Lori rebuffed, telling Tim she already had a boyfriend. We also know that on the night Lori disappeared, Tim was expected to attend a party at the apartment owned by Rob, one of his co-workers along with two females who also worked at their store in the mall. 
Though the apartment was only a short drive away and the members of the group all headed there after they closed their store for the night around 9 p.m., Tim didn't show up for hours. Victoria, Lori's close friend and a mutual acquaintance of all the people we've mentioned, told us Tim's colleagues would later share with her that Tim had been hours late, finally arriving to the apartment where the group had planned to gather after 11 p.m. He didn't offer an explanation of where he'd been, and he's acting extremely out of character. We heard from Victoria that the group of friends at Rob's apartment said Tim was acting frantic, breathless, and pumped up, like an athlete hyping himself up before a big event. His behavior scared the others. And then, Tim began to draw disturbing images. Victoria told us that Tim began to cover a page in sketches drawn in black pen with occasional splashes of red. The images were violent. One sketch showed a bloody knife. In another, a man was grabbing a woman from behind. Her clothes were very like the ones Lori had been wearing that day, the clothes she would have been wearing at the moment she went missing. And in the days and weeks that followed Lori's disappearance, Tim seemed to withdraw from others, to fade out of the social life he'd held until that point. Victoria said she didn't see him working at the mall for much longer. She didn't see him around at all. Soon, no one really knew how to get in touch with him. One final fact that supports the case against Tim is his life following Lori's disappearance. We know that after withdrawing from his job and group of friends, Tim left the state, moving around frequently. He got rid of his car, one that, if he is in fact guilty of the crime, would potentially contain evidence before any investigators learned of his story and became interested. More importantly, we know that Tim has continued to have run-ins with law enforcement wherever he's gone. Not only has he had a number of traffic violations and DUIs, though he's had plenty of those, he's also left the trail of women filing for personal protective orders against him. Clearly, the women in his life consider him violent and capable of causing harm. With regard to the facts that don't seem to support the case against him, they're really to be frank, are not that many, though there are a few items to mention. First, in speaking with those close to the investigation, we've learned that the events at Rob's apartment, the story of Tim being late and frightening his friends when he arrived, was not reported to investigators for some time after Lori went missing. It wasn't until years later, in fact. While this information doesn't change the fact that Tim's behavior that night makes him a strong person of interest in Lori's disappearance, It is worth noting that his story is one of particular interest, largely due to the timing of the events, the window of time which he was late, and the date on which they occurred. As more time goes by, it's worth noting that memories fade, details and times get fuzzy, and so on. We're not in any way claiming that those who were at Rob's apartment or Victoria or anyone else has gotten the story wrong, but if we are pointing out facts that need to be considered, the timeline in which the memories were recounted to investigators is at least worth mentioning. And on the subject of timelines, another detail that is worth bringing up, although it far from disproves Tim as a person of interest, is the window of opportunity in which Tim would have needed to dispose of evidence. We know Tim should have made it to Rob's apartment shortly after 9 o'clock p.m., or at least by 9.30, given the store at which the group worked closed at 9. Lori, however, left them all later than that, due to the computer issue she and Tammy had to sort out before closing graffiti for the night. If Tim is the person responsible, he would have needed to wait outside the mall until Lori left. 
We confirmed with Victoria that Tim had never been to Mark's apartment and did not know where he lived. He then would have had to follow her to Mark's. Mark, Victoria, and Lisa heard Lori pull into the lot around 10.15 p.m. And shortly after that, of course, she disappeared. If Tim arrived at Rob's around 11 p.m., as we've heard, this leaves him roughly 45 minutes of time in which he'd have abducted Lori, killed her, if his drawings are any indication, disposed of her body and any other evidence, and then made it to Rob's. This might seem like a lot of time. To be fair, all of those things could have occurred within that window. But when you consider that no trace of Lori has ever been found, you start to picture a very deep burial or a very remote location. Tim would not have had time for either of those within the 45-minute window if he did indeed arrive at Rob shortly after 11, which we have no reason to doubt. Yeah, that's right. It's also possible that he would have kept Lori's body and any other evidence in the trunk of his car while at Rob's, but to be honest, if he's already two hours late for his plans, clearly not concerned with being on time, it strikes me as highly unlikely that he'd suddenly feel so motivated to get there that he'd risk not disposing of evidence that could implicate him in a murder. Yeah, that's a good point. Okay, let's briefly cover our opinions of the case against Tim. What do you think? As we've said each time, I truly do think any one of the three could have committed the crime. But I find the case against Tim to be far and away the most compelling, at least with all the available evidence at this point. His connection to Lori is a known fact. It doesn't rely on happenstance or a stranger witnessing her. Tim, based on the story his friends told, and his later history of violent and threatening behavior seems like a man capable of becoming enraged at something like being turned down by a woman in whom he has shown interest. And it's hard to get past the fact that he drew violent images of a woman seemingly being abducted, wearing clothes like Lori's, on the night that those at the party would later learn Lori did in fact go missing. It all adds up to a very strong case for me. I agree. For all the reasons you pointed out, as well as the fact that Tim's story is really the only one that could explain why no one heard Lori scream. We've heard from those who knew Lori that she definitely would not accommodate being followed by a stranger, but that she was very kind to the people she knew. It seems very plausible then that she would be willing to let Tim approach, to speak with him, have a cigarette with him, maybe even sit in his car for a moment. Up until that night, He was a guy she knew who she didn't necessarily have a reason to fear. As you said, it would not surprise me if a new detail came out that pointed to any one of the three persons of interest. But if I had to state who seems most likely today, I would also point toward Tim. I think it's also important for us to mention that we have these three suspects based on the investigation to date. Since there's not a lot of evidence in this case, It also remains possible that the perpetrator is somebody outside of Tim and David Spanbauer and Larry Dwayne Hall. Before we wrap up this episode and look toward next week, when we'll discuss some of the exciting information we've uncovered while researching this case and the steps we're taking to investigate further, We wanted to cover what the location of Lori's remains, if discovered, could tell us about which of the three could have been responsible. That's right. While finding and identifying Lori would be an incredible break in the case, 
and would certainly provide some level of closure for the many who have searched for answers over the past three decades, the discovery of her remains would not necessarily lead immediately to an arrest. But in looking at each of the three individuals we've discussed, there are some clues based on their prior behaviors, statements they've made, or simply who they are as a person, which could indicate where they would be most likely to have disposed of evidence, including Lori's body. Perhaps if Lori were found, these clues could help indicate who might be responsible. Larry Dwayne Hall is incarcerated for kidnapping Jessica Roach, who was found murdered in a cornfield just across the Indiana state line from the Illinois town where she'd been taken. In his confession, Hall told investigators he'd brought her to a remote spot near a river and a bridge, strangled her, then brought her into the cornfield. In another attempted confession in Indiana, though Hall was later released after being unable to point to the burial spot, Larry brought detectives to another remote location by a river, where he told the investigators he'd killed and buried Trisha Reitler. Though the exact location Larry gave investigators for Lori's remains was never made public, we do know he gave them a remote wooded area as the location to search, one that would have been at least a little bit of a drive outside of the Menasha or Appleton area. We also know that a search of that spot never led to any discoveries. If remains were ever discovered after further search of the location Larry Hall provided, it would certainly be the evidence needed to prove his confession was truthful. Or perhaps he will one day offer another location that ultimately leads to Lori. As Hall is the only one who has ever at least attempted to take credit for the crime, it would really require that he accurately disclose the location to investigators to prove he's responsible. David Spanbauer is a little different. Although he was an opportunist and at times killed to escape from being caught or because, as in the case of Trudy Jeske, he was surprised to find he was not alone in the house he was burglarizing, Spanbauer did seem to have an established pattern for getting rid of the remains of the girls he'd abducted and then later murdered. In both the cases of Ronnie Eichstatt and Cora Jones, David Spanbauer almost immediately drove the girls far away from the scene of the crime, nearly 100 miles away, hiding their bodies in roadside ditches that were covered in overgrown weeds and native grasses. Both times, David headed west, away from Lake Winnebago and beyond that Lake Michigan. Instead, he drove Renelle Eichstatt towards the Wisconsin-Iowa border, ultimately hiding her body in Iowa County, Wisconsin, not too far from the state line. Cora Jones was driven north and west on a path toward the border between Wisconsin and Michigan's Upper Peninsula. She was left in a ditch in Antigo, Wisconsin, about 70 miles from where she was taken. If David Spanbauer is responsible for Lori's disappearance, it seems very possible that her remains too would be discovered some distance from where she was taken, possibly to the west and likely in a ditch. Tim's the last person to discuss, and there are a few things that make him different from the other two. First of all, we know Tim's timeline for the night Lori disappeared, at least for the most part. He would not have had time to drive much more than 20 minutes from where Lori was taken in order to hide her body, and even that seems tight, unless he had a place he could quickly hide her and then leave. As an anthropologist who often leads excavations, I can tell you that digging a hole is very hard work and takes a lot more time than people often expect. Given Tim's timeline, we would either expect Lori to have been hidden very near the area in which she was taken, 
are driven only a short distance away and placed in a shallow grave or some other method of burial. A second point to consider is that Tim was unlike Larry Hall or David Spanbauer in that, to the best of our knowledge, he was not a practiced killer at the time Lori disappeared. He would have been much more likely to panic, to immediately look for a place to dispose of any evidence against him. This theory of his mindset is supported by the fact he was described as breathless and frantic once he arrived at Rob's apartment. Though any of the three could have hidden Lori's body in a relatively nearby area, it seems that in Tim's case, this is almost a certainty. We know he didn't have much time. We also know he was frantic and quite possibly panicked. He seems the most likely to have looked for a body of water or some other local feature to hide her remains. If Lori were one day found in an area near the location from which she was taken, it would likely point most convincingly, though not beyond all doubt, toward Tim. Throughout our research on the case in preparation for this podcast, and honestly, during the duration of this season of Cold Case Frozen Tundra, We've heard from many listeners and community members who reached out to share information on the case. In next week's episode, you're going to hear about some of those tips that we've received, including one story that we are actively following up on as we continue the investigation into the truth behind Lori's disappearance. We at Cold Case Frozen Tundra would like to thank Victoria, Krista, Kira, and the many listeners and concerned community members who have shared information that have helped inform our research on this case. If you have a tip that may aid in the search for Lori Deppis, please reach out to us on the Contact Us section of our website, frozentundrapodcast.com. If you want to keep up with the latest episodes and updates, be sure to follow or subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform. You can also follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Frozen Tundra Podcast. Our theme music was created by Mario Cole 06 and is available on Pixabay. We've written and recorded all the other music used in the show ourselves. <laughs>